March 28th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. And Adnan Saeed, the subject of Serial Season 1, convicted in the murder of Heyman Lee, who had his conviction vacated in 2022, is now back in the position of being a convicted murderer. The vacation has been, in a sense, vacated. The appellate court of Maryland ruled two to one that a lower court had violated the right of the victim's brother, Young Lee, to have been notified of and to attend the hearing. Young Lee was told a few days before that the court was going to rule on this case and free Saeed, and he did join by Zoom. He was at work at the time when the hearing originally occurred. They waited a half hour, then he joined by Zoom. But Young Lee argued that wasn't good enough. And the hearing was where Saeed was freed. His lawyer brought it up, but it was essentially shot down by the judge. But now the appellate court of Maryland has disagreed. I was surprised, but maybe I shouldn't have been. Oftentimes we hear from experts who don't necessarily tell us what's likely to happen. They tell us what they'd like to happen. Maybe through no fault of their own. They are human after all. So here's Channel 2 headline. Channel 2 Baltimore, law professor, gives his take ahead of Lee Appeal hearing in Adnan Saeed case. WMAR2 News spoke with law professor Doug Colbert of the University of Maryland, Cary School of Law. It ought to be the final hearing. We ought to put it to rest. It would be an extraordinary decision if anything goes beyond tomorrow morning. We should note, however, that Doug Colbert was not just a lawyer and not just a defense lawyer. He was Adnan Saeed's first lawyer during his bail hearing after his arrest. The Baltimore Banner quoted a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law, David Jarrow, saying it's a steep climb for the victim's family to persuade a court that the short window by which they were given an opportunity to participate violated their rights. But you should know that David Jarrow, director of the Center for Criminal Justice Reform at the University of Baltimore School of Law, is not just a lawyer, not just a defense lawyer. He is a defense lawyer at the school where the director of the Innocence Project Clinic is attorney Erica Souter, who is right now Adnan Saeed's lawyer. When the hearing took place, Jaros was not just saying that it was unlikely to be successful. He said and argued on Twitter that the attorneys for the Lee family openly attacked the integrity of the judiciary and alleged that the judge colluded with the prosecution to stage the hearing. Big deal to make that kind of allegation if unsubstantiated. It could seem to implicate ethics rules. So Jaros thought it was more likely that the lawyers would be slapped with an ethical violation than what actually did happen, which is that the lawyers would win. Now, maybe this is the proper and was always the proper judicial prediction. Perhaps it is truly shocking and no judicial mind in their right mind could have ever seen this coming. But what I think is that the pool of experts that we in the media go to are a certain kind of person, a certain with a certain orientation, perhaps affiliated with a law school, perhaps involved in things like innocence projects. And they're not necessarily the kind of person and the kind of lawyer and the kind of appellate justice who actually makes rulings. So We are reinforced in our own belief by people who sound believable. And then when legal precedent surprises us, we don't know why we were let wrong. It's just become a self-affirming feedback loop. I do have to say, I am surprised. It is unclear whether Saeed will actually be going behind bars. 
And although I think Young Lee should have been given enough notice, I know that Adnan Saeed has gone through a hell of a lot. And what I've come to believe was a case of the improper application of beyond a reasonable doubt. On the show today, I will talk about police abuse of black people and white people. And that will stem from the conversation I'm about to have. When you think of images like the man standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square or of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck, it makes you wonder if the person who coined the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, had wildly underestimated the value of a picture. My next guest, Todd Brewster, has recently co-written the book, Seen and Unseen, along with Mark Lamont Hill, about the power of imagery to change social narratives. Todd Brewster joins me next. The horrific killing of George Floyd as caught on video changed the perceptions of many Americans about the state of police violence. It didn't really change the reality. It just put in our faces what activists, what researchers, what the black community has known for a while. But it did it in such a compelling form that, the argument goes, it forever changed how we would see police violence. This is one of the themes of Seen and Unseen, a new book by Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster. And I'm fascinated by this issue because, as you know, and if you listen to the show, I often talk about the flashpoints of police violence that can royal communities and challenge the nation. And I also want to know just what the future of this might be, because I've been looking at many, many instances of police violence caught on body cam, caught on tape, and sometimes they are not what they appear, and sometimes they are worse than they appear. Todd Brewster joins me now. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. I'm happy to be here. I'm trying to think about if there is a word, maybe it's um, an academic discipline, maybe it's the word semiotics, but what is the, let's say, lens that you and your co-author looked at all these images and all these videos? What were you uh, using to examine what we all saw with these acts of police violence? Well, I would say we were examining them within the history of American race relations um, and the role that media going all the way back to the original still photography through the arrival of motion pictures, through the arrival of photojournalism, through the arrival of cable television, the camcorder, and then finally in our own time, the arrival of the ubiquitous cell phone, the cell phone video, um, as well as social media and show how it was through media that we have um, uh, uh, learned about the black experience um, and how it has been both uh, uh, used, media been used both as a tool for justice and interestingly also as a tool for injustice. Mm. 
So it is true. It is. And this is what the book uh, points out, that so many of the uh, changes of perception or so many uh, instances where um, the civil rights movement got momentum can trace back to an image. Um, Sometimes it's a story, you know, Rosa Parks, uh, though she was uh, chosen for her image. But the image of Emmett Till on the cover of or in the pages of Ebony magazine, but for that image, would the story of Emmett Till stand out for any of the other hundreds of, you know, legal lynchings of black people? Uh, Unclear. But for the images of the beating of Rodney King, would anyone know, care or think or know to challenge the police narrative? Highly doubtful. And but for the images of George Floyd, would that particular instance serve as the flashpoint and the inspiration for the biggest protests um, in 20 years in this country? Also unlikely. And I think you're right that we kind of forget that. We just absorb it as a fact. But the f- the reason that we know this fact is because of the image. Is that Do you think that says something bad about us or does that just say something human about us? I think it says something more human about us and also the nature of media. And I I think there's a step there that would take your argument um, onto the next plane, Mike, which is that we uh, deduce from this that the particular is a demonstration of the many, Um, that that the, uh, uh, the murder of Emmett Till was not an isolated experience, um, that the murder of George Floyd was not an isolated experience, that that it is a demonstration of the level of violence that is committed daily in this nation. And uh, so it becomes even more horrific when you contemplate that it was, but for the camera, it would have gone, gone forgotten. I think we remember these images when they become symbolic, right? And it, it's it's harder, interestingly, for a video to be symbolic than it is for a still image. Um, where there are videos that are symbolic. One of the ones we cite, and, and your your listeners who are old enough to remember this will know, uh, the Tank Man in in Tiananmen Square, which was you know during the uprising of the students. The tanks arrived to push the students out, um, and this man who was on his way back and appeared from the grocery store. I mean, he'd been, he, he was carrying bags of, of appeared to be groceries, uh, goes and stands in front of the tank um, and eventually climbs up onto the tank and pounds on the hood of the tank to try to get the tank uh, driver to emerge. Um, but the the bravery, the, um, the statement of the individual against the state, against the sort of cruel metal of the state's military armor was very, very powerful. And of course, he disappeared from there. We can only imagine that he was punished, if not killed, for his uh, protesting statement. As you were describing that, I'm sure many of my listeners, the image flashed on their mind and the climbing up part, the actual kinetic motion did not occur to them as having been part of history. It's just him standing there still. They probably remember it as a still image. Yes. And I think that that that's a very good point, Mike, because I think what happens sometimes in video that is symbolically received, uh, it's because we reduce it to a symbolic still image in our minds. And the same thing happened to great effect with George Floyd. Uh, Few of us have sat through the full nine minutes and 28 seconds of the killing of George Floyd. It's just a gruesome 
event to watch. Um, but we do have an image in our minds of Derek Chauvin with his knee in the neck of George Floyd while he's being pinned to the pavement next to the tire of the police cruiser. Ironically, you know, um, an image of a man on a, on a, on a knee, another man's um, uh, underneath that knee, has rich resonance for the black experience. Um, there are images, one in particular from the Birmingham riots of 1963, of a police officer with his foot on the neck of a black woman. A horrific scene. This is the riots that followed the, the killing of the young girls in the Birmingham church. And um, uh, that image resonated deeply with the black community in particular um, to the point where Lorraine Hansberry actually in a meeting with Robert Kennedy who was seeking the support of the black community for um, initiatives of, of, of his brother was then president. Um, uh, Lorraine Hansberry uh, says, I, I don't think I want to live in a country that accepts the image I saw of the foot on the neck of a woman in the streets of Birmingham. So there are historical markers to be that resonate with this. So some of the images are arresting and capture our attention collectively. And some of them, for whatever reason, don't. I mean, your book gets into what are the reasons and what aren't the reasons. I mean, Kent State is a great example. The images, the anguish, the posed Pieta-like anguish, I think that's even an analogy. When I think of that, uh, photo, I think of the Pieta, and you mm -hmm. uh, write about that in the book. But you also write about that just very close in time to those killings uh, by agents of the state against students were similar shootings and killings on black campuses that have gone all but unrecorded, especially in the white community. Yeah, that would be the Orangeburg massacre and the Jackson State uh, shootings. Um, these are stories that, as I think we say in the book, lacked the the image that you know everyone thinks of Kent State we think of Marianne Vecchio and and, and the photograph of, of which again very interestingly is a someone on their knee next to a dead body right and in this case it was someone that the Ohio National Guard had shot in breaking up the protests over the Vietnam War however there was no photograph like that at Orangeburg there was no photograph like that at Jackson State there are no storytellers like like um, uh, uh, Esther Hotz, who uh, uh, writing for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, um, uh, wrote the, the, the best articles about the, the episode at Kent State. The storytellers, as well as the photographers, are some of the reasons why we end up remembering something over uh, something else. And there were not the storytellers for the black experience um, in the South Carolina, nor were the photographer the photographers there um, to be able to record what was happening and and thereby uh, represent that for history. And I, you can make many you know arguments for what that why that was, but I think probably the overriding one is that the same level of concern for the black population was not there as it was for the white population. So I 
uh, was a, a thought was sparked in me as I read the book, and I've been thinking about this for a while. And I think that we are at a sort of a crux point. Uh, we are at sort of a pivot point in terms of what video we see and what we attend to. And certainly, as you point out, going back to Birth of the Nation, the postcards that were passed around, photographs of uh, lynchings. The technology used to be limited, so only D.W. Griffith could really afford the cameras. Certainly the distribution was limited and limited by a white-dominated society, especially who were able to own printing presses or the ability to get these images in front of people. And then there was gatekeeping going on. Now, all of that changed, but it changed in interesting ways. The technology is no longer limited. I mean, I, I guess when... The Rodney King video was uh, shot by George Holliday, the plumber who happened to have a camcorder, which a lot of people didn't have at the time. It began shooting. Maybe we told ourselves, oh, this is going to change everything. But now that cameras are literally on everyone's person all the time, that is just, it's become, you could say, democratized. You could say level. There is no technological barrier to getting everything on tape. That's one. Distribution with social media, again, totally leveled. But there still is a gatekeeping element. And the element is the decision of people in newsrooms, of which you were one for many years, and the algorithms. And I think it's changed in a really interesting way. Why do we see certain videos, but not other videos? Why don't we see, when if I were to say the names George Floyd, or Dante Wright, or even Micaiah Bryant, who was the teenage girl in Ohio who was uh, shot by a police officer as she was trying to s stab another girl from her group home. Why do we know these images and, uh, and these names, but not know names like Tony Timpa, not know names like Ryan Fitzpatrick or Daniel Shaver, who were white men who were killed just as horrifically by police? And I think about the gatekeepers and I think about the algorithms, and I wonder if you do too. I do. And of course, I think it's one of the, the algorithms in particular, one of the main reasons why we are, our, our polarization is it becoming more acute in that we, uh, the algorithm assumes that because we watched one video, we're going to watch, want to watch other videos of, of the same tone or the same character. Um, and that means that we're, we're not being exposed to news and events. Uh, that might uh, counter our understanding of that. It's ironic, isn't it, Mike? I mean, because we have more video and more more media than any time in human history. And yet we are desperately uninformed about so much. Um, and and we tend to... Um, I, mean, I, I, I mean, we've always had this issue with journalism that you gravitate towards... Uh, the newspaper or the, the television network that shares your values more than the other ones, right? I mean, this goes me, you go back to the 1920s in New York City when there were 15, 18 newspapers. Uh, they all had deeply formed political points of view. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with our going to those whose values we, uh, we attach some kind of sympathy to because, you know, we believe that they're telling us a truth that matches with the things that we think are important. However, you know, it's the distortion of facts. It's the uh, manipulation of facts. It's the not telling of other stories, as you allude to them, that makes us feel now, from this perspective, 
uh, that we're being denied certain things. And I think that's what's increasingly happening with the algorithms. Well, you would agree that the algorithm is amoral, right? It's not trying to give us something that we need to see. No, no, but it is, I mean, um, but it is, it is, uh, it, it, it predictive behavior becomes determinative, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, and that's, I mean, is, is there a moral component to, to stop making our decisions based upon predictive behaviors? I, I don't know. Maybe there is, uh, because it, it, it limits our, our ability to hear other, other, uh, countervailing, uh, options. And, um, uh, but, but by, yeah, but technology itself is, by definition, amoral. I mean, I think we can we can agree on that. I'm just adding another slice of the argument in there to be able to say, you know, um, since it is built upon the notion that if you if you did one activity, you'd want to do a similar activity uh, rather than an activity you have never done. Right. If you if you if you align with one point of view with by choosing one option, you probably want to continue having that point of view as opposed to a point of view that might disrupt what you thought the first time around. Absolutely. But the point of view, especially if you look at the uh, George Floyd video afterwards, uh, just going by the New York Times push alerts, it seemed to me and more than seemed I documented this, that every high profile police shooting of uh, a black citizen armed or unarmed, like speaking of Micaiah Bryant, was served to us. And this is a human being making the decision. Here's something you need to know. And it certainly seems like, well, after the murder of George Floyd, this was something people were interested in. And we got more and more of these videos. And I think maybe people came to believe that this was a ubiquitous phenomenon that black people, unarmed black people, were being shot and killed by the police every day. When I asked, even in Inform people how common do you think the phenomenon is? How many unarmed black men were shot by the police last year? The estimates I get are usually, you know, I people say I don't know, and I say, oh, I give you three choices: a hundred, a thousand, or ten thousand. And no one has ever taken a hundred, and the answer is, as you know, seventeen. Now there are a couple ways to count this, but the Washington Post has been doing the count for the longest time. And in 2022, there were actually seven. You know, I'm saying seventeen from a few years. 2022, there were seven unarmed black men shot and killed by the police. There is another uh, mapping police violence that has a broader definition of that. And you can find uh, an argument that's upwards of 20 unarmed black men were killed by the police. And in each year, more unarmed white men are killed by the police. So since we're talking about anecdote, not data, because what they serve us is the anecdote or the image, you'd have to ask why are images of white people being killed by the police not being seared into our consciousness? Is it because the images aren't there? No. I mean, I don't recommend my viewers do this, but if you want to look up the killing of Tony Timpa, it is horrific. And Daniel Shaver tried to do the thing, which we've seen many black people do, where you get conflicting uh, instructions, you try to comply, but the person gets shot anyway. And I wonder if this is a good thing or a bad thing, if the overall quest is something like police accountability and just civil rights for Americans. Certainly the black community has suffered under over-policing for a long time and still continues to do so. But by, since we are such an image-driven uh, society or people, what kind of service are our gatekeepers and our algorithms doing by making it seem like this is a 99% problem of black victims instead of much more evenly distributed across society. Well, you know, I, I, very interesting point. And I, I will say that I think it depends upon how you frame the story, of course, right? If you frame the story that 
that um, uh, that it's about uh, police behavior, police violence, um, then certainly Tony Tempa and Andrew Shaver are part of that that story. And that might be, and I'm surprised if the Times and other places have not done that, uh, a story that's 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 worth pursuing in vigorous um, in a vigorous way. However, if, if the story really is that black people, as you just alluded to, suffer under um, uh, strict policing that um, uh, sometimes results in violence, uh, then uh, and often results in violence, and sometimes and often sometimes result, results in deadly violence. Yeah. Then I that's that's a different story, one that is being uh, more commonly uh, distributed now. In reaction, in part, to what we've been able to see, uh, uh, and, and the fact that the claims have been been made for the longest time among the, in the black community that they are unfairly treated by law enforcement, and uh, and the willingness to accept that has been uh, not as prevalent as it was once we began to see imagery of it. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, there's two different stories, really, right? I mean, and and they both need to be told. Uh, and one, it's like what I tell my my students when I'm teaching journalism, I say, you know, all right, think of the story as a piece of sculpture, going back to what we alluded to with, with the George Floyd video. Stand at one point looking at the sculpture and you'll see one thing. Walk around to the other side, you see something completely different. But they're all part of the same sculpture. And maybe the balance needs to be understood better and would be understood better if we didn't have uh, an algorithm-driven media environment. But I think both stories need to be told. Yeah. And that is, I do come back to that, that it seems that the algorithm selects for black victimization. And part of that is disproportionately blacks actually, even though, as you know, uh, I cited the statistic, there are more whites. And since we're talking about individual stories, the anecdotes or the individual data points matter. But of course, disproportionately blacks are victimized much more. And it is, to me, it seems to be an algorithmic choice. Although I don't know if people in newsrooms, you know, want to rebut the algorithm on this, on this one fact. Well, you know, but it takes us back to earlier in our conversation, Mike, about, about, um, Kent State, doesn't it? And and uh, Orangeburg, I mean, which are, um, you could argue, were both examples of, of police conduct, um, uh, although one was National Guard, the other one was police in South Carolina. But um, in that case, where before there was an algorithm, the so-called algorithmic behavior of the editors, uh, photographers and reporters was to go for the white story and not for the black story. I've been speaking with Todd Brewster, who, along with Mark Lamont Hill, has written Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. Todd, thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Mike. It was great talking to you. And now the spiel, which will have some content that could be disturbing, because I'm going to talk about what I had been talking about with Todd Brewster, the idea of images, and in this case sounds, of police killings. So as you heard me discuss with Todd Brewster, I've been wanting to talk about this subject for a while. The question you heard me pose to him in a certain form can be restated this way. What if the media 
portrayed the killing of all Americans by police as a sad blight on this country, a blight that warrants our attention as opposed to the current state of affairs, which is that the media, both algorithmic and human, continue to present a story of the police killing black people as a major issue of our time. And indeed, it is a major issue, but I am asking the question of widening the aperture. It seems to me there are two considerations when posing the question that I have. One is, is that an accurate framing? And two is, would it make a difference? So you heard me present some statistics to Todd. I'll restate them here. More white Americans are killed by police each year than black Americans are. More unarmed white Americans are killed by police than black Americans are. At some level, this shouldn't be too surprising. America is a 60% white country and a 13 to 14% black country. So white Americans should, and I of course use the term advisably, should suffer more at the hands of police than black Americans do. And they do suffer more. They just don't suffer four times more. They are shot and killed or killed by any means half the rate of black Americans. Hispanic Americans, by the way, slightly more likely to die from police violence than white Americans, but it's almost the same. There's a decent enough argument to be made that you can't just take a population's percentage overall and use that as a proxy for what should the rates be of police violence. You have to take into account how many interactions does each group have with police. And then furthermore, and this is very hard to ascertain, how many interactions should they have based on probable cause or likelihood of a successful interdiction. But since my hypothetical to Todd and you here is about anecdotal killings, the ones that rise to national attention, that are said to stand for the trend, that get us in the gut that get us out into the streets, the one or two galvanizing example, the absolute rate of police killing is not the sole issue. Could one, if one wanted to find white Americans killed by police in a manner as horrifically as George Floyd was or Eric Garner or Dante Wright? Yes, you could find them. In fact, I'd go as far as to say you have to willfully look away not to find them or just exist as a citizen in this country served by the people and machines that shape our narrative. Now, if I were to just cherry pick some horrible examples from the years of the unjust killing of white people, I would be guilty of misleading you. But the fact are that white people are killed in greater number and white people are killed in just as horrific a manner. And if there is a journalistic and moral imperative to think of examples that highlight those facts, we can find those facts. We could find what Brewster and his co-author Hill define as vivid images that represent scenes of, quote, deadly violence, which trigger a broad response of sympathy and outrage about injustice. They originally said racial injustice. I'm speaking overall of all injustice. In a hotel hallway in Mesa, Arizona, police instructed Daniel Shaver to lie face down on the carpet, which he did, not to move his hands, which he didn't, and eventually to crawl, which he did, But then when he reached towards what might have been his shorts falling down. Do not put your hands down for any reason. You think you're going to fall, you better fall on your face. Your hands go back in the small of your back or down. We are going to shoot you. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. Crawl towards me. Crawl towards me! Yes, sir. Don't go! 
the unarmed shaver, was killed, shot dead. Then there's Ryan Whitaker, also killed in Arizona. He was inside his home, lawfully armed, as Philando Castile and Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, were lawfully armed. And as with Castile and Walker, the perception of one ambiguous move got them gunned down without too much consideration. How you doing? Whoa! Put your hands! 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 Back away from the gun. Get back and get, get out here. Come out here. Come out. I'm not going to shoot you. Come out here. Come out here. Tony Timpa's death in Dallas was a lot like George Floyd's. The schizophrenic Timpa was unarmed but non-compliant, and a police officer kneeled on his back in an ordeal that took 14 minutes as Timpa pled for life. You got any name on him or anything? Just Tony's the only thing we can get. Help me! Tony! Hey, get on the ground. No, you're going to kill me. I'm not going to kill you. You're going to kill me. You're going to kill me! To no avail. The officer on Tempest's back was not criminally charged, was not tried. In fact, last year he was promoted. Well, uh, well, uh, well, uh, well, uh, they had them down like this because they had him just sitting down. He's like rolling, rolling, like rolling, rolling, rolling. And I was like, ah, schizophrenia. He definitely got kicked. He took something. Hey, Tony, what'd you take? It puts me in a sort of uncomfortable position to argue that more attention should be paid to these white men or the many, many innocent victims whose images are blurrier, more ambiguous, or non-existent than Timpa, Fitzpatrick, or Shaver. I had actually many to choose from. These could just be the ones to perhaps rival the sight of an Eric Garner, or a George Floyd, or a Tyree Nichols. But in the same way, there are many, many black men whose images at the hands of police weren't caught on tape, or tape so clear as to become household names. I really hope that it doesn't seem that what I'm saying is that less attention should be paid to the black victims of police violence, who clearly are killed by police disproportionately. But these actions, the one I'm highlighting here, they did happen. And I don't see why it's a rebuke of the idea of racial justice to, as I said, expand our aperture as to who pays the cost of injustice overall. So this all brings me to question number two. Will reframing the debate, widening it out, hurt the cause of police reform? Well, first let's note that the cause of police reform has largely failed since 2020. The immediate demands during the reckoning of that year were a bit muddied, and they included calls for defunding the police, which, though rarely heeded, did not work. I support DeRay McKesson's directed efforts to advocate for specific reforms. He had his Eight That Can't Wait initiative. He was on the show talking about it. But McKesson was opposed by those in the movement because he is a reformer. They are abolitionists and accommodation cannot be made. So reform, such as it was, has stalled. Now let's ask ourselves, might a Rand Paul libertarian or just the usual Fox viewer, but non-QAnon adherent, become more sensitized to the issue of police misconduct if cases like Timpas or Whitakers or Shavers were better known? They might. I'll also borrow a core tenet of CRT, which contends that America will only progress if the white majority deems it in their interest, as Derek Bell wrote in Faces at the Bottom of the Well, 
We, black people, are, as I have said, disadvantaged unless whites perceived that non-discriminatory treatment for us will be a benefit for them. Let's just stipulate that he's right, that progress always flows through white America. Derek Bell's the intellectual force behind critical race theory. Many Black Lives Matter activists certainly believe and were influenced by his teachings. So rather than argue over or fight with that statement, let's stipulate it. And then we ask, might a different tact overall be taken in this fight? This fight to lower the number of black people killed by police. Might that tact be something like, let's try to lower the number of all people killed by police. It might seem insensitive, diminishing, or racist to raise the issue of the many, many people of all kinds killed by police. And I'm not the one to plausibly champion it. But what if the framing within legislatures and newsrooms were just slightly tweaked? Would it work? So to bring us back to question number two, the will it work question, realize reform has not worked so far. A new tact could have benefits. One, could spur reform. Two, could give us a more accurate picture of police violence. Three, could offer a corrective to the idea that this horrific problem is only or even overwhelmingly one dependent on racial animus. And lastly, it could step outside racialized silos of inaction. After all, realize if next year the police killings of white Americans stay the same, but the police killings of African Americans drop to zero, we in America would still have by far the highest rate of police killings in the industrialized world. I don't see why this couldn't be and isn't a progressive stance, especially because it's an accurate stance, and especially because, as we just heard in that interview, the power of the image is supreme. It seems like a very retrograde mindset to say that an injustice against one group precludes there being wider injustices in society as a whole. I know it's seen as regressive overall to ever argue, but white people too. But I do think in this case, the many white victims are not a rebuttal to black suffering. Their example underscores and advances the idea of the severity and pervasiveness of a problem black America has correctly been trying to get all of us to move on for years. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST's producer. Joel Patterson's the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of philanthropy for all of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupuru, and thanks for listening.